grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we will focus on our epistle lesson from the book of James, especially the verse that is considered to be the theme of the entire book of James, which is found in our epistle from James 1, verse 21. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. It is sad when people do not live by these words. Anger and resentment and hurt all result from disobeying these words of God as recorded by by James. James teaches us to be swift to hear and also slow to speak, slow to anger. We are to listen without being quick to condemn, for anger does not produce the righteousness of God, as we heard in our epistle. Some have described our nation as the divided states of America. Many are gravitating toward polar extremes and becoming galvanized in their positions. This results in being the opposite of what God teaches, that many are now slow to hear, and yet they are swift to speak and maybe even swift to anger. And let's be clear, some issues in our country do allow for flexibility, while others do not. There can be differing viewpoints when it comes to regulations or taxation or even foreign policy, but some moral issues are clear. Not only are they settled by God, but they continually, from experience and the way the world works, shows that there is only one right way. God made boys boys, and he made girls girls. God established marriage in the Garden of Eden between a man and a woman, something that man is not to separate, and he creates life in the womb. And when people get caught up in ways that are opposed to what God teaches here, that's where we, though, need to also remember what James teaches us. Let's not quickly judge or condemn, but instead let's teach and do so patiently, explaining the better way. Lots of people are screaming inside for help for they have become caught up in sin. Or maybe someone close to them has gotten caught up in sin. Perhaps they're addicted to alcohol or porn or overeating or overspending. Maybe they've cheated. Maybe they're abusive, or maybe they delight in gossip, and they want help, but they do not know where to turn. Usually, they may, or often they may figure that they cannot turn to the church because they figure that the church will just be there to condemn them. Everyone figures that they need to put on the best show to the church because they figure that the church is only for the good people. They think that if they turn to a fellow Christian in the church, that person will be dismissive or disparaging, saying, you low-down, no-good piece of scum, how dare you behave that way? That's why James warns us, and he teaches us very clearly that we are to be swift to hear and then slow to speak and, of course, slow to anger. 
If brothers and sisters in Christ are hurting, if they are screaming for that help, the last thing we do is pour salt into their wounds and inflict greater pain. It is a horrible thing when believers in the name of Christ quickly condemn and offer no forgiveness and no help. Of course, this does not mean that we ignore the sin either. If someone admits sin to us, we don't say, well, you know, people are doing a lot worse things out there th these days than what you're doing. What you're doing and what you're tempted with, those sins that torment you, they're not really so bad. Don't get so bent out of shape over that. There's much worse. That statement is just as bad for two reasons. One, we're denying them the gospel. That's the main reason. And second, we're also denying what the law says concerning the word, concerning those types of actions. We are teaching them that God would only condemn the worst of the worst and not anything else. But remember the point that James makes in the following chapter. He says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. What then is the appropriate response when hurting souls come to us? Well, first we have compassion on them. And while we have compassion on them, we do not sugarcoat the truth. We still recognize that their sin is sin. And if they see that their sin is a sin, we don't need to keep on reminding them what they already know. But instead, when they see that their sin is a sin, we focus on the gospel. We apply the words of Christ Jesus and his gospel to them. That forgiveness of sins, we remind them that Jesus took away the sin of the entire world. There is no sin that Jesus left out. There is no sinner that Jesus left out either when he died on the cross. But that he truly paid for the sins of the entire world. That sin is not only forgivable, but already forgiven by Jesus who already paid for that sin on the cross. All too often, people do not turn, though, to the right people for help when they are hurting, since they don't think the church will help them, since they figure the church will simply judge rather than give them this glorious gospel, they often turn to non-Christian so-called professionals who will listen to them. They will often turn to people who will probably lie to them and say that their sin or their temptations aren't sin. They will turn to people who will embrace their behavior rather than help them turn away from it. Many find these resources online. They can find whatever they want and any type of ear that they want to confirm them in their sin. Instead, we ought to turn to where God has taught us to turn to. Turn to Christ, turn to the ministers whom he has sent, turn to our brothers and sisters in Christ, turn to, that is, turn to the church. The church which God has established to announce and proclaim the forgiveness of sins. So do you have sins that weigh you down? Are you burdened by years of guilt? Christ's church is here to help you. You are welcome here because Christ delivers to you his forgiveness. He tells you, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. You are directed to Jesus as you've seen so far in the liturgy and in the hymns 
as you've heard in the scriptures and as you hear in preaching. You are directed to his word, his saving word. James says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This word saves. This word, this implanted word saves you. The word has been implanted in you in the sense that God has brought you into his church, into his family, into his fold through the waters of holy baptism. And James is urging you to take advantage of what is already yours, what God is giving to you out of his abundant grace, to take advantage of what the word says about you, who you now are in Christ, to take advantage of the gifts that which Christ gives, to take advantage of the absolution, that declaration that your sins are taken away, to take advantage of the truth of Scripture and to take advantage of your pastor who speaks Christ's words into your ears. So do you have sins which weigh you down? We all do, unless, of course, our hearts are hard and we deceive ourselves. If your sin terrifies you, receive with meekness that word because it is able to save your souls. Hear how your sins are taken away in Christ, how he shed his blood on the cross as the ransom payment for your sins, that Jesus, already before you were born, some 2,000 years ago, died to take away your sin and rose to give you newness of life. There is only one way to heaven. Many think it's the way of being good or by downplaying or ignoring their sin. But the way to heaven isn't that way, our goodness, or making up for the wrongs that we've done, or even repaying our debts, as good as those might be. But instead, the only way to heaven is through Christ, through the forgiveness of sins which he bestows and which is proclaimed to you through the word of God. That is why James is teaching you that this word saves your souls. For without this word, you cannot have salvation. For the Holy Spirit only operates through his word. And as Jesus says, the spirit of truth convicts you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That the spirit works faith in you through this word and he delivers to you the forgiveness of sins which Jesus earned for all on the cross. He brings that to you individually through his word. Therefore, receive this word with meekness, which means we receive that word with humility in submission to our Lord, with gentleness and with gratitude. We hear the word as God's very words. We do not let modern ways of thought replace God's word, and we do not place our reason above the word of God. You, you know, God did give us reason. Reason is a good gift of God. Reason has allowed us to take care of ourselves. Reason has allowed us to survive. Reason has allowed us to advance in many ways and to allow for people to live longer than they have in years since really the time of the flood. Reason has allowed for many good things, advances even in technology. And when it comes to the Christian faith, we even employ our God-given reason. We use reason when we ask that question that we've learned in the catechism, what does this mean? 
And to answer this question, we use the right kind of reason. And the right kind of reason is in humble submission to the word of God, to look to what God says in the scriptures, to see what he is teaching. So when the Bereans heard about Christ crucified and risen, they searched the scriptures. They used their reason in a godly way to verify the word which was being proclaimed to them. Our reason then is employed to let scripture interpret scripture so that we can look up passages, find parallel passages on something that might not be so clear to gain clarity to it, and to let the scriptures teach us the answer. This reason is in service to the word of God. It's known as ministerial reason, God-given reason in which we submit to what God teaches through the scriptures. And just as there is a good use of reason, there's also a bad use of reason. This type of reason is known as magisterial reason, It's where we want to put our reason above the scriptures in order to get the scriptures to say what we think it should try, that we think it should say. Either we try to twist the text around, ignore the text, try to make the text match our opinions or make it match modern ways of thought. It's not humbly submitting to that word of God. Here's an example of magisterial reason. Since only the word saves, as the scriptures teach, many reason then that baptism and the Lord's Supper cannot save. That's a magisterial use of reason. It seems to make sense. If the Bible says we're only saved through the the word, then they say baptism and the Lord's Supper cannot save. Many reject us Lutherans for believing that baptism saves, even though Peter says baptism now saves you in 1 Peter 3. And they reject that the Lord's Supper delivers the forgiveness of sins, even even though Jesus says in Matthew 26 that this is for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because they have heard very well that the word alone saves, therefore baptism and Lord's Supper can't. Well, then what are baptism and Lord's Supper? To them, they may say that it is their work. But the scriptures do not teach that. The scriptures are, in fact, the works of God. I mean, the, the baptism and Lord's Supper are, in fact, the works of God. There is no quality in me as a pastor that makes the bread the body of Jesus, and there is no quality in me as a pastor that makes the wine the blood of Jesus. So why then do we believe that when we eat the bread, we are eating the body of Jesus, and when we drink the wine, we are drinking the blood of Jesus? The answer for that is very simple. It is the word. The same word that saves our souls is that word which makes the sacrament a sacrament. The word present with the elements of bread and wine declares that this sacrament is the body and blood of Jesus. And this word in the sacrament delivers to you that forgiveness of sins for the salvation of your bodies and souls, which means the sacrament does save you. The word was implanted in you through the visible word of holy baptism. Many believe that baptism is the work of man. They claim that baptism is their commitment to Jesus, but that isn't what the word of God says. And so rather than believing what seems rational, let us believe what the word says about baptism, that baptism saves you, 
Baptism is a means by which God joins you to the death of Jesus and to the resurrection of Jesus. Baptism is the means by which God adds you as a sinner into his family as a saint. Baptism is the means by which Christ covers you with his very righteousness and declares that you are a member of the kingdom of God. All of this is granted to you in your baptism, and it is because the word is spoken, the name of God is placed upon you in holy baptism. Therefore, continue to receive the saving word of Christ in meekness. Continue to hear it and do so with great joy. Be in that word day in and day out, for through that word, God is working in you your salvation. Through that word, he offers you comfort. Through that word, he forgives you. Through that word, he reminds you that even though you are a sinner, you are now set free from your burdens and guilt. Christ has taken it all away. The Father looks down at you and sees you righteous in Christ. If you are looking for help, if you're screaming inside, if you have loved ones that need it, do not turn away from the word, but turn to it and turn to where the word is proclaimed. Turn to the church, turn to the ministers whom Christ has sent and receive with meekness that word which saves your soul. Receive his word in all the ways that it comes to you through the word heard and read, through the visible word in the sacraments, through the absolution, and through the voice of your pastor. For in that word you receive the comfort that you are saved, that heaven is now yours, that Christ our Lord loves you, and that you are reconciled to your Father in heaven, that all your sins are canceled out. Thanks be to God for this word that reveals to us Christ. Amen. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.